Then Jesus called the crowd together and said, Listen and take this to heart. It's not what you swallow that pollutes your life, but what comes up out of your mouth. Don't you know that anything that is swallowed works its way through the intestines and, ex and is expelled into the latrine? But what comes out of the mouth gets its start in the heart. It's from the heart that we vomit up evil arguments, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, lies, and slander. That's what pollutes. Eating or not eating certain foods, washing or not washing your hands, that's neither here nor there. Thanks, Chris. You can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. I know we just read out of Matthew, but, um, but I'll explain where we get, get back to it. You know, for, for those who, who might be new with this or haven't been in a couple weeks, uh, we're kind of on this journey with Jesus through a land called Samaria. So the way Luke writes his gospel story of Jesus, um, the first nine or, nine or so chapters, like almost the end of chapter nine, is in this place called Galilee. It's the place where the disciples grew up. It's in their hometown. It's in a place that um, was pretty uh, Yahweh-centered, like Judaism-centered, Jewish-centered kind of worship. So there was everybody that lived there, the majority of people who lived there uh, would have been... Um, um, very much acculturated and a part of the synagogue and the church, what would have been the church like for that, that time, right, for, their, for that, um, th that faith, the Jewish tradition. Um, they would have been expectant of God to work. They would have, um, just like probably to some extent in our context, uh, there was different groups within that, um, that kind of context that had different levels of conviction of how things should work out and ways things should play out. But for the most part, most people kind of grew up really inundated in this uh, Judaistic faith, right? In this Jewish faith, this Yahweh worship, right? And so, but um, the way Israel worked at the, the Galilee was in the north and Jerusalem, their place of worship, like where the temple was, was in the south. And so there was a regular pilgrimage that would have taken place to get to Jerusalem. Um, it would have been a regular route that people would have gone. But in between Galilee in the north and Jerusalem in the south is this land called Samaria. And Samaria was a place where there, it wasn't void of faith. It wasn't void of religion and spirituality and Yahweh worship, but it was mixed and mingled with all kinds of other things. Um, it was tangential to the, to the Jewish faith, where the Jewish faith thought that you could only worship God in the temple. Uh, the faith uh, of the Yahweh faith in Samaria said, well, you can worship God kind of anywhere. Different trees, different places, all those different things. And so it's kind of like a context to where, in some ways, Samaria was very much a place where people, um, they kind of varied, probably a lot like our place now, where they varied in their familiarity with the Jewish tradition and the Jewish faith. Some of them leaned a little harder towards it and like had an affinity towards it. Some had kind of taken aspects of it, a seeking of like the goodness of God and the kingdom of God in some sort of way and kind of created their own way of getting that and accessing that. Some had nothing, they wanted nothing to do with it. Um, and especially did not want anything to do with those trying to make their way from the north to the south um, to try to get to the place of worship. And so most Jews would avoid Samaria altogether. They would just go all the way around it to get to Jerusalem, which made it a really long trek. I mean, it was directly in between Galilee and Jerusalem. But they'd make the long trek all the way around Samaria to get to this place of worship. But Jesus actually takes his disciples right through Samaria. He, he leads them into a place that the normal Jew would not have gone. He leads them into a land that's, that, again, is fairly secular, but still religious, right? He leads them into that place. In, in Luke's gospel, from chapter 11 to almost chapter 20, 
like he kind of meanders around and every story takes place in this kind of Samaritan context. This context where Jesus is talking to people who are kind of on the edge, if not outsiders to the Jewish tradition. He's talking to people who had by all accounts by the good Jewish people had been rejected by the Jewish people. He's talking to people who at the same time are antagonistic to the very people he's talking to. <laughs> They're antagonistic to the Samaritans as we'll see the good day. But he's also talking to his disciples. All along the way, he's training his disciples on how to live life in this kind of Samaritan world. How to live life in a context where everybody around you doesn't believe everything that, the, and think about God in the same way that you think about God. Who has some similarities, there's actually a lot of similarities, but who actually may see things a little bit differently than you. So how does Jesus talk to God and with God in that context? That's what we're looking at. How does Jesus talk to people and with people in that context? Um, and so today we're going to be looking at um, a couple of people that Jesus talks to. The, the interesting thing about this journey is that it's never just like people who are outside on the fringe that Jesus talks to. He always kind of like, especially the way Luke puts this kind of meandering story together. It goes from Jesus talking to those who wouldn't have been talked to by quote unquote church people, like right, like good religious people with those who are the really good religious people. Like the conversations kind of go back and forth. There's a scene where Jesus is interacting with those who are on the outside or on the fringe, and then a scene where Jesus is interacting with those on the inside. And again, like Luke is writing this for us, telling us this story so that we can learn through the way Jesus interacts with all these people, how we might know God interact with all these people and maybe even ourselves a little bit. And so today's story in Luke chapter 11, we find um, Luke chapter 11, verse 37 is where we're going to start in just a second. Where We're going to find that Jesus is kind of, he's already been talking to his disciples. That was a couple weeks ago. And then if you follow the story, um, then Jesus begins to demonstrate some of the power of the kingdom. He begins to, to, to remove demons uh, and spiritual forces from, um, from the Samaritans and the world in Samaria. And there's a whole mixture of response to that. Some are in awe of that. Some are confused by that. And, but Jesus is interacting with the crowds of people who are somehow enamored by the power of Jesus. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves that Jesus is about to be invited into the home of a Pharisee. And then at, in the home of the Pharisee, we're also going to interact with a lawyer. Now, it's important for us to kind of know just for a second who these people are, right? So a Pharisee is someone who out of their conviction, out of a deep conviction, has committed their life to a particular way of being with God. Who have committed to follow 613 rules, 613 laws, to orient everything from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep for the purpose of being ones who help prepare the community to receive and interact with God when he comes back. To be prepared, to be able to be a part of what God is doing. They have in them a deep conviction. They're not vocational. These aren't people who work for the synagogue. These aren't people who are uh, Levites by birth. These are, these are normal people to some extent who have committed their life out of conviction to be ones who, for the sake of the community, help the community be pure and ready to be holy for when God comes back to be prepared for God to do what God promised to do at the end of the Old Testament, to restore Israel, to restore their nation, to restore their heritage, to take a once, um, uh, a once like worthy people and to again kind of reestablish their, their worthiness amongst the nations, right? So this is, these are the Pharisees. These are pretty con people out of conviction who are doing these things, right? They're super 
They, they have a deep conviction that life with God is super important, not just for them, but for those around them. And in their 200 years of history before Jesus interacts with them, they've, they've been uh, like had risen within the community to a place where they're responsible to help the community figure out how do you get in with God? And how do you, how do, what happens when you're out with God? Like even though they're, they're not professional, they spoke to the community they demonstrated for the community what it looked like to live life with God and what then it looked like to be ones who are on the outside of God, what kept you from living life with God. And the community looked to them for that. That's why they interact with Jesus. That's why they interact with John the Baptist. That's why they interact with those who come in trying to teach and talk about God. It's because a part of their role within the community, both their place in the community, their authority within the community, but their expectation and their responsibility within the community was to help make sure the community knew if somebody talking about God was actually in step with life with God, what God really said. Same thing with the lawyers. The lawyers, though, were not simply out of conviction, ones who, um, um, who spoke to the people and helped them connect with God. They were ones who vocationally did so. They were professionals in the law. When we, say, when we think of lawyers, we think of like our, our civil laws. But for a lawyer in this day, it was the law of God. Which, which for them was an all-inclusive law, a law that determined how the community worked. So there were like civil things within the law, but there was also, again, the ritualistic law, the way in which sacrifices were done, the way in which one could make themselves ready to enter into the presence of God or keep, be kept from the presence of God, all those kind of things. They were experts in that. And so they had an elevated place within the community. Again, for their, their actual vocation and role within the community to a community of people was to speak to them and demonstrate for them how to walk in life with God or not. So as much as we kind of get on to them for confronting Jesus all the time, as much as we kind of mess with them for, for, um, for some of the ways they respond, and justifiably so, and we'll see a little bit of that today, right? They had a super important place. And they were super influential in the community. They, they were the ones who, in a lot of ways, had kept Israel ready for God to come back over 200 years. And so they're, they're these people who are elevated to this place where they speak and make clear the path of God, who, as the psalmist said, they took it seriously, as the psalmist said in, um, in Allison Redforest, of teaching rebels their ways so that the lost might find their way home. That they took that responsibility to heart and tried to live it out. Now, what we'll see in a few moments is maybe their hearts weren't quite into to it in the way that they should have been, but they were pretty influential people. And while we may not think so highly of them now, the truth is almost every disciple had some admiration for this group. Everyone that followed Jesus to some degree had admiration for this group. They were either connected to this group directly or they were influenced by this group in the way they grew up and where they grew up and how they grew up and how they thought about God and all those kind of things. Perhaps this is why Jesus spoke so directly to these proclaimers in word and deed of the way of God and to God. No other group does Jesus speak more directly to than to this group. Because why? Because they're the ones who set for the community what the expectations of, of interacting with God is. So Jesus speaks pretty directly to them. And as one who is both by conviction and vocation, <laughs> um, led to speak like the Pharisees and the lawyers so that rebels can find their way home, I'm particularly interested in what Jesus has to say to this group. So I'm saying this to tell you, this, what we're about to read, has a lot of personal conviction for me, right? Because in some ways, I'm doing what the Pharisees felt called to do, and the scribes and the lawyers felt called to do, right? 
to speak to you so that you might be ones who know who God is and the way to God, right? But the thing is, like not only are, am I the one that gets to speak that, but we're all called to speak that. We're all called to be ones who are a priesthood of believers. Like we're called to be ones who speak to others about who God is and how to call them to God. Well, I make it my vocation. We're all meant to make it our conviction, right? We talk about that as a faith family a lot, right? Like we, we were meant to not just receive from God, but also to share with others the things that God gives us. To be ones who help show friends, neighbors, kids, the life that we have in God, the grace and mercy of God, the, the justice of God, all those kind of things, right? And so in some ways, two things are true. We're all influenced by Pharisees and lawyers. We, whether we've grown up in the church or not, our culture, the culture we swim in, is a culture who's had men and women for generations speak of God in the ways of God. And we find ourselves in the midst of it. That doesn't mean that all of that's bad or wrong. Like a lot of what the Pharisees said and the lawyers had done prepared the way for Jesus and made a direct, easy connection for some of the disciples. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's a true thing that we do not enter into the context, even our scriptures, even today, in the way we think about God and life with Jesus without the influences of others in our lives who have spoken, spoken to us about God. But here's the other truth. <laughs> We're not only influenced by Pharisees and, and lawyers, sometimes we are them. Whenever we decide to speak of God to others, we're doing the same thing that they're doing. If, if we ever get to the point where we're reading the New Testament and we, we're reading about scribes and Pharisees and these ones that Jesus seems to rebuke a lot and we're, we're all like really happy and like, yeah, get them, Jesus, we probably, we probably forget that we're them a little bit at times. That we have the tendencies that they did. Because remember, they operated out of conviction, out of responsibility, out of a desire. Now, again, what we're going to discover today is that Jesus confronts some of that conviction and desire and helps purify some of that conviction and desire. But like, it's important for us as we get into the story to recognize, again, that we're influenced by it, but we also are contributors to the same thing. Okay? Let's jump in to Luke chapter 11, verse 37 and 38. While Jesus was speaking to the crowds, a Pharisee asked Jesus to dine with him. So Jesus went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. Now that may be astonishing to us. If you're a parent, it's not astonishing to think of somebody not washing their hands before they come to the dinner table. That actually happens every single night at our house. And so, but... Like, this is the, the, the Pharisees' um, uh, hesitation, uh, astonishment at what Jesus did. It has nothing to do with hygiene. So what's happened in this scene is that Jesus has just got done speaking to the crowds about where he comes from, who he is, like, um, about being able to, to recognize the power that he brings is not the power of, of Beelzebub and the enemy, not, not some outside um, force, but rather is the light of life itself. And the Pharisee, being a good Pharisee, taking responsibility for the community, invites Jesus into his, to his table, a place, uh, an honorable thing to do, right? So that he might figure out, is this Jesus really somebody that's speaking truth or not, right? This is what he does. 
And when Jesus comes in, he's expected to wash before he reclines at the table. This is, this is a ceremonial thing, right? This is something that makes him be able to be pure and cleanses anything that Jesus has accidentally touched or done that would, have been, that would have been an offense to one of the 613 laws. It allows him to kind of be cleansed of that. And so therefore he can dine with the community in conversation and purity, right? And so Jesus knows this. He's grown up in this tradition. This is not an abnormal thing for him to have done. He would have done it every single time he had had dinner, even with his own disciples. But he purposely does not do it this time. He purposely avoids doing the culturally religious thing in order to get the Pharisee to kind of question. Like, what's going on? Who is this guy? What's happening? To, to reveal his heart, right? And so like, and this is how Jesus works in our life too a lot of times. Like when we see like something that's kind of feels off culturally and religiously, like sometimes it's meant to kind of get us to kind of ask the question of what, whoa, what is it? Especially when we see somebody who seems like a Jesus worshiper, a Jesus follower, do something that's kind of outside of our own like church cultural kind of expectations. In some ways, Jesus still does this today. That's beside the point. This is what Jesus does. He's doing it to, to, to show the heart. So let's keep reading. Verse 39. Now you Pharisees, so Jesus is not speaking directly to the one who invited him anymore. He's talking to the whole group, right? So he goes from entering into the house of an individual. And so he's not questioning an individual's heart directly, right? Him particularly. He's speaking to a whole group of Pharisees, right? A whole group that's kind of bought into this way. So now he's speaking to not just his host, but to a group around. He says, you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and, and, and of the dish. In other words, you wash everything you buy. You wash everything you touch. You wash everything you consume to ensure that it, it cannot keep you from God. You're super diligent in making sure that everything is ritually, spiritually, purely clean, physically as well, right? But inside, you are full of greed and wickedness. Your rituals and religion are not for God's love, but love of self. That's what he's saying when they're greedy. You're, you're actually, you're, your religious rituals, what you're after in doing these religious things has nothing to do with love of God and everything to do with love of self. You're greedy. You want something from it. And not only do you want something from it, you're also wicked. Meaning you want to keep people out. Like you actually have in your head an idea of who the right people are to be in and who aren't. You care more about a ritual than you do about a person's soul. You're wicked. You're greedy. You want something out of it, not just God, not communion with God. You want something else out of it, something, something other than that out of it. And you care more about the thing than the people. Now, I don't think any of us have ever experienced that in the life of the church, have we? I don't think any of us have ever thought that, right? We've never done religious things in order to get something other than communion with God. We've never cared more about what we're doing and how we're doing it and less about the souls of the men and women that we share life with. Right? No, we haven't done that. But here's what Jesus keeps saying. We'll keep going. And even worse, I'm oh, sorry, let me find my place. So he says, how foolish of you. 
So this is actually a proverbial term. So Jesus is talking, again, to ones who know the scriptures, who know the law, who know the, the deals. He uses a term that would have been like, you're, you're fools. Proverb, in the proverb sense, you don't actually know the thing that you think you know. You're fools. You're foolish. How foolish? Did not he, that is God, who supposedly do the things for, who made the outside also make the inside too? In other words, don't both things matter? Doesn't it both matter how you live in the heart of who you are? Don't both of those things matter? Not just your heart. The way you live matters. Both of those things matter. Don't both of them? He made the outside and the inside. But give alms, that is, share with the poor and needy the things within your hearts. And behold, everything is clean for you. In other words, Jesus is saying, if your heart is clean, then everything entering and exiting will be clean too. If your heart's clean, then everything entering and exiting will be clean too. You'll know what to consume and what not to consume. You don't have to do all these other things to figure that out. If your heart is clean and your heart is shared with the poor and needy, because here's the thing. This dinner was a, was a place where the Pharisees would have invited Jesus to, but not all of Jesus' disciples would have gotten to be there. Because some of Jesus' disciples were tax collectors. And those guys would not be allowed to be at the dinner table. There would be no poor, no beggars. There would be none, no people who lived on the streets. There would definitely be no people who weren't ritually clean. And there would definitely would have been no, no Samaritans invited into the dinner. And so when Jesus says, give alms, share with the poor and needy, He's literally saying, like, you, who, who, with people who aren't here. <laughs> well, like, you, all you do is you give your things back in, you practice your, your religious systems within a, within a closed circle. But if you share your hearts with those who aren't here, the poor and needy, the Samaritan, the insiders, the outsiders, the tax collectors, all those, then everything will be clean. It, it's a completely upside-down system of what the Pharisee would have known, right? And would have expected and then Jesus does something that we have a hard time with, especially as Americans, especially in our day and age. He speaks really bluntly and condemningly to people, right? We don't like that. I don't like that. I'm not comfortable with that. I don't like to speak those things. I don't like to receive those things. But this is what Jesus does. But he does it for a purpose, right? Everything he does, he does for a purpose. And this is what his purpose is going to be. He says these words, but woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you is an actual phrase. It's not just some random words. It's not just like, how dare you? Like, woe to you is a spoken phrase. It's usually spoken from a place of grief, like a severe grief, but it's a spoken in a way that deposes someone in authority. He deposes with grief those who have had the responsibility within the community to speak the way of God to others. He deposes them. He takes them from a high level of influence within the community and removes them from that mantle, right? That's what he's doing. He's speaking to his, all of his disciples, everybody with a herd, everybody that this story is gonna leak out to, that Jesus has said, these are not the ones to look to for the way to God anymore. That's what he's doing when he says, whoa. But it's spoken out of a place of grief. It's spoken with a sense of grief. Because as we read earlier in Luke's gospel, remember these same Pharisees and lawyers, these scribes in, in Luke, chapter, uh, Luke chapter eight, it said that they rejected the plans of God for them. That God had, Jesus had other plans for the Pharisees. He wanted them to recognize God in him, 
so that they could participate in what he was doing. But they chose not to. They chose not to. They chose not to, to hear the, the words of John the Baptist. They chose not to listen to the way and the words of Jesus. They chose not to. And so they missed out on what their role was really meant to be. And so with grief, he says, he deposes him. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb. That is, you give a portion of everything. You're so detailed in your obedience, which is kind of astronomical, right? Like, it's pretty crazy that they will literally go through in order to make sure that they are being completely obedient to their kind of formed way of life with God. That they will go in every little plant, take a tithe off of it. Every little plant. Have you ever grown mint? Go and try to count mint leaves in your pot and then tithe off of that. That takes a lot of energy and effort, right? And they're willing to do that. But then what does Jesus say? Yet you neglect justice. You're willing to spend the time and energy to count how many mint leaves you have and tithe off of that. And yet you reject acting justly towards others, caring about the justice of God within the community. You neglect it. You don't do anything about it. And even beyond that, you don't love God. You neglect your love of God. You neglect your love of God. It's not that they don't love God at all. It's not that they're like antagonistic against God, but they neglect any sort of communion and relationship that comes with love, right? Their desire was not relationship with God, communion with God. Again, it was what they could get out of God in their place with God. They neglect loving neighbor and loving God. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. That is, you love what you get within the community, the honor of what others think and bestow upon you. You love what this way of life gets you in the place of the community. Now, that may not look the same for us in today, in today right? But I think it kind of does. They like influence. They're really after being accepted by others in the place of influence and the power and authority in which they get because of their way of life with God. They're really after that. He says, you love that. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. And we kind of maybe skip over this, but this is actually really important. So Jesus is saying, hey, listen, like what you're after is something less than life with God. What you're after is the life that you get from being a godly person, like being one who's perceived to be godly. Authority, power, influence, wealth, all those kind of things. That's really where your heart is. That's what he's exposing. Your heart really isn't after justice, loving neighbor, or an affection for God, a communion with God. Your heart really is after the things that you get from God, right? And so what happens as one who speaks of God who has that heart? Here's what happens. You become, you become an unmarked grave that people step in on their way to God. And that may not sound like anything to us, right? But if, if a Jew was on their way to the temple and they happened to step on an unmarked grave, they would no longer be allowed to enter into the temple. They would have to go through a ritual cleansing process for seven days before they could go into the temple. They were, they were hindered then. They would be unprepared to enter into the presence of God they would no longer be qualified to enter into the presence of God. At least immediately. There's something that would, they would have to do more in order to get to the thing that they were already on their way to do. It's why in, a different, in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he says, you're whitewashed tombs. 
They're not, the tombs aren't whitewashed to keep them clean. The tombs are whitewashed to mark them out so that travelers don't step on them, don't get near them. It has nothing to do with like how making it pretty. It's making it seen, making sure it's clear so that you don't accidentally touch something you're not supposed to touch that keeps you from the presence of God. And so listen to the irony of this, right? Jesus is saying that those who speak and show the way of life with God actually make people ritually unclean without even them being aware of it. You do the, in other words, they do the very opposite of what they say they're after and what their responsibility is within the community. Because their responsibility was to make people clean, to, make, to let people know that, they're, that what's clean and unclean. And yet, unintentionally, uninformedly, they are making people have to go through more than they have to go through to get to the presence of God. When the religion we pursue with conviction, because again, the Pharisees are super, super convicted people. You don't become a Pharisee in a half-heartedness. You can't. There's no way to do it. But when our when we pursue with conviction comes from what we can get from God, or how we can keep others out from God, we can help people clean up first before they enter, then our dedicated obedience becomes not an example of life, but a hindrance to it. Most likely we've all experienced the influence of such conviction. We've all run into those who have put on us um, a demand that seems overwhelming. And listen, life with Jesus is demanding, right? Life with Jesus demands a lot from us. Like Jesus would say, like you give, you become poor and needy, right? To follow me. You abandon religious rituals to follow me. Like you don't turn around and say bye to everybody. You just follow me, right? You don't, there's no excuses in this, right? There is a demand to life with Jesus. But there's a difference between a demand of life with Jesus and a hindrance from us communing with God. Being ones who have access to God. And when our heart is after something less, the things that we get out of religion, or a desire to insulate and keep us from all the things that are outside of religion, then we end up unintentionally personally being hindered, but also creating a hindrance for others into the presence of God. So for a couple of minutes, I want us to just sit in that. To take a minute and ask our Father, in what ways have the motivations of others hindered me from entering into your presence? Again, we all find ourselves in the midst of this same community and context, right? And so just ask the Lord, maybe nothing comes to mind. Maybe nothing comes to, to, to heart. But just take a minute and just ask, Father, is there anything from those who have spoken, from Jeremy, from others in my life, who has made entering into your presence more than it, more than it needed to be? So we're just going to take a minute of quiet. That question is going to be on the screen. I'm going to let you ask it, and then we're going to do something else before we continue in the rest of the story, okay? Just take a minute. You can let, you can, the way we do it, if you're new with us, is like we just, we, we practice this time of quiet a lot. So I'm only, I'm going to say this real quickly and then be quiet. Like this is normal for us. We think we can hear God and we can listen to God together. And that reading scripture, a part of reading scripture is having enough time to let it kind of absorb and sink into us. And so we want to have some space to be able to do this. So just for a moment, just ask as a prayer, 
Father, in what ways have the motivations of others hindered me from entering your presence? Well, chances are that uh, we've all been influenced by such examples. Um, we've all had um, some run-in in some form or other with those whose motivations maybe had deep-seated convictions, but whose motivations were less than maybe, um, maybe than communion with the Lord, um, maybe less than um, justice, um, a care for our souls. We've all been influenced by that in some way. Um, the truth is, too, that we all have probably contributed to the same kind of tension and feeling in others. Um, whether they be our children, as parents, demanding and trying to show them ways that add more to life with God than God demands, or maybe neighbors, creating necessity that others might have to go through a longer process, more process to enter God's presence because of all the stuff that we put in their way. And so while it's fair for us to ask the Lord to show us where others have hindered us, it's only fair that we also ask the Lord to show us how we've hindered others. And so just for a moment, we're going to pray the same thing, but pray it a little differently. Father, in what ways is my heart and the religious actions that come from my heart, hindering people from being prepared to enter your presence. Let us just sit with that just for a moment, and then we'll continue forward.
whether um, we find ourselves as ones who have accidentally stepped on unmarked graves because of the motivations of others or find ourselves in the role of the perpetrators. Um, We both get to pray this prayer together. So we just close your eyes, take a deep breath, and just pray with me. You can pray out loud if you want, or you can pray quietly. Father, create in me a clean heart. Again, whether your heart feels muddied because of what's been done to you or your heart feels muddied because of what you have done, pray one more time. Father, create in me a clean heart. Listen, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if the last question uh, that we ask God show us where we have, because of our heart motivations and the way that we lived, created stumbling blocks, difficulties for others coming into the present, that you wouldn't be a little offended by that. That might be a little offensive. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of offended if somebody were to ask me that. So it's okay to be a little offended by that. You wouldn't be the only one who is a little offended by that, right? I mean, think about it, especially if you know the scriptures, you know that there's lots of rules and regulations. You know holiness is a really important thing. You know all that stuff, right? And listen, people at the dinner table with Jesus that night were kind of offended. In fact, if you go into verse 45, we recognize really quickly how how offended they were. So if you feel offended, you're not alone. Because as verse 45 says, one of the lawyers answered, That is, one of the lawyers jumped into the conversation with Jesus. One of the lawyers quickly, after Jesus had said these things, jumped in. Again, with a a couple of different responsibilities, right? He has a responsibility to kind of guard the community. So he's he's gonna push back on Jesus on some things. But now he's also jumping in because he's starting to feel some conviction. Because what does he say? Teacher, that's an honorable title, teacher. One who has some authority, who recognizes that you know what you're talking about. In saying these things, you insult us vocational guides also. He's like, wait, if the ones who out of conviction are woe to them, they're deposed. They unintentionally create obstacles for people coming to the presence of God. Wait a minute, you're you're offending us because we're the ones who help them figure out what laws to create. (laughs) We're the experts. We're the lawyers. Like he's feeling a bit of conviction. He's like, wait a minute, like if you're talking to those who out of conviction our hearts are exposed. What about us who are vocationally walking this? Are like I feel kind of like maybe I'm I'm kind of one of them, which is kind of a kind of an interesting thing to admit, kind of a brave thing to admit, but also kind of one who's admitted and not quite settled into it yet, right? And so, what would we expect Jesus to do if somebody who kind of who makes this statement? Would we expect Jesus, like probably in, in kind of our in our cultural expectations? I won't say for everybody's, but for mine, if if this was happening in my house or like at in my family, if somebody got confronted and somebody heard, it's like, oh man, like that kind of convicts me too. My first tendency would be like, oh no no no, it's okay, you're okay, it's all right. I was talking to them, I wasn't talking to you, or whatever. Kind of kind of make it a little bit of an apology or slider like, oh yeah, you know, well maybe you are a little convicted or whatever, but you know, like to kind of redirect. Anybody else like that's the way it works in your families? Like, like you can't, you can't let the sideways things be the, the sideways thing. Like it, you've got to kind of try to lower the, the temperature a little bit. 
Well, Jesus does the exact opposite. That's not what Jesus does. In fact, what he says in verse 46, he goes straight into it. He says, woe, again, a deposing act. He's deposed the, the, those who, out of conviction, the Pharisees who are trying to speak the way of God to people, and now to those in a vocation trying to speak the way of God to people. He says, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people up with burdens hard to bear. You helped build out the 613 laws of the Pharisees. You helped show them all the ways on top of the scriptures that they needed to live in order to be ones who live rightly with God. You're more than willing to let people know what they should and should not do. But he says, you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. That is, you do not bear the burdens of those you share life with. You give out advice and counsel, but you do not walk with them through it. It's not that they weren't willing to keep some of these laws. Most of them, right? They, they actually were. That's not what he's just saying. He's saying you're happy to give people a whole load and then just let them off on their own. You're happy to give all kinds of advice and counsel and not actually share life with people. Walk alongside of them to carry the burden with them of even their own load. You've let the knowledge that you have keep you at a distance from actually life with people. So he says, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed the prophets and you build their tombs. This may seem confusing to us. But what Jesus is saying to the member, law experts, the Old Testament experts, the story of God experts, you're a part of a long line of insiders who rejected those truly showing the way of God. Because what did the, the ones who killed the prophets do? They killed the prophets because the prophets were telling them that the way of God was different than the way they were living. Then what they were after in teaching the people and proclaiming the people was not actually what God was up to and what God wanted from them. And so these guys think, hey, well, listen, we keep the tombs of the prophets all marked and clean. He's like, no, no, you're not keeping them marked and clean because you're in line with the prophets. You're keeping them marked and clean because you're in line with the ones who put them in the tomb in the first place. In reality, you were like the ones who put them there to keep God's people from listening to them. That's what you really like. You're really actually trying to shut down the ones who will teach and show the actual way of the Lord. Therefore, also, the wisdom of God said. Also, again, goes back to you fools, you're foolish. He's saying, hey, again, you think you know the word of the Lord. You think you know the wisdom of the Lord, but you don't. So he says, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel, the first person killed for showing how to rightly act with God, to rightly relate to God, killed by someone who didn't want him to relate to God that way and wanted to relate to God in his own way. That first one, all the way to Zechariah, who in the Old Testament in, uh, in Second Chronicles is the last prophet killed and he's killed for the same reason by the religious leaders who didn't like what he was saying about how they were living versus how God would have them live. And so they set it up that he would be killed 
in the sanctuary on his way from the altar. So from the first prophet of the Old Testament to the last prophet of the Old Testament, you guys are caught up in the middle of that. And this generation is going to experience the epitome of it all. They're going to experience the peak of it all. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. In other words, Jesus is speaking in some ways to his, what's going to happen not too long after he gets out of Samaria. He's going to die. What are they going to do to, to him? The final prophet, the prophet of all prophets, the one who shows God's way in the way of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the judgment of God, the kindness of God, who exposes the hearts of the insiders and the outsiders, all those things, the prophet, what do they do to him? They kill him and they put him in a grave, just like they did all the prophets that came before. Woe to you lawyers, Jesus says, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. Ironically, you've actually kept people from knowing God from really knowing who God is. Because Peter would say later, remember in his letter that we looked at last summer, like knowing, truly knowing who God is, that's what allows us to live life full and true and whole. Like that, that's where like knowledge of God's super important. But you've actually taken that away from people. You've kept people from having access to it, from, from truly knowing it, because you have espoused your own ways of what you think God is up to versus what God's actually up to. And you've put to death all those things that are actually what God is up to through his prophets, through the prophet, through Jesus, rather than encouraging them. And then he says this, not only did you keep them from knowledge, ironically, keeping people from knowing, you who are knowledge people, but you did not enter yourselves. You didn't even take advantage of the knowledge that you had. You didn't even live into the thing that you were really after, life with God. And you hindered those who were entering. You kept them from experiencing the fullness of life with God. You couldn't keep them out. That's the beauty, right? Of both the Pharisees and the, the, what Jesus says to the Pharisees and the lawyers. It's not that you keep people out of the kingdom. A person who steps on a grave, a few days later after they go through some things, some process, they'll get into the temple. They can still get there. They're not forever stricken out of it. And listen, like those who are really after the knowledge of God and know God, They'll, they'll end up finding it. Jesus already said it in the same chapter, just a few verses before. Seeking you'll find. Knocking the door will be open. Like, asking you'll receive, right? Like, if they're really after it, I mean, G Jeremiah the prophet said it, right? If, you're, if you search for me with all your heart, you'll find me. Seek after me, you'll find me. Like, you're, you can't keep that knowledge from people, but you can make it hard on them. Or when they find it, they don't get to experience the fullness of it because you've created all kinds of twisted things in their heads. But you can't keep anybody out of it. You can't keep anybody away from it. How incredible is that? That's really awesome, right? That the Pharisees and the lawyers can't keep anybody who's really after God from God. But they don't really help either, right? Which is what they're supposed to do. It's what we're supposed to do. And so again, we've both experienced such hindrances, the ways of thinking about God, being told who God is and how God acts that's kept us from the fullness of life that's actually how God is and who God acts, how God acts and who God is in Jesus, right? And so let's prayerfully ask one more time. Father, in what ways has the knowledge of you shared by others hindered me from truly knowing you? 
Because listen, this is what Jesus does his entire life. Is he tries to counteract all the ideas that we have about God and show us who God really is. His entire life. We'd be foolish to think that that doesn't still happen today. So for a few moments, just for a minute, let's ask, Father, in what ways has the knowledge of you shared by others hindered me from really knowing you, from experiencing the fullness of you? Well, it's true that we are ones who have, um, have received knowledge of God that maybe tangles us up sometimes. It keeps us from things sometimes. We're also at times ones who contribute to some of those things that entangle others. And so for a few moments, let's just ask the Father, in what ways is my knowledge of you and what knowledge I share with others hindered people from experiencing the fullness of life with you. Just ask, sit, and listen.
again, as ones who maybe feel a dimness of faith in part because of what's been shown to us about God or maybe even ways that we have shown others, we can pray together this prayer. Let's take a deep breath and pray with me. Father, let me know you in Jesus. Father, let me know you in Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, we can respond to this conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees and the lawyers um, in one of two ways. We can, like many of those at the dinner, allow our offense at the exposing and deposing words of Jesus lead us to bitterness and vindictiveness, <laughs> to um, a hard-heartedness towards Jesus, towards his way of life, towards the Father and the Father's way of life. In verse 53, this is what happens. As Jesus went away from the dinner, the scribes, that's just another word for the lawyers, and the Pharisees began to press Jesus hard and to provoke Jesus, to speak about many things, lying in wait for Jesus, to catch Jesus in something he might say. We can, like many in Jesus' day, try and get around the conviction of Jesus' words. It's just which what they tried to do, right? They tried to get around the conviction. We can try to explain our way out of what he says, to trap him in different words and to get him to say things that fit and contradict or fit the way of our preconceived notions. We can try to turn and twist his way of life and make excuses for our way of life. We can try to take his commands and actions and hearts and get what we want out of them. I mean, it's been done for centuries. There's nothing, nothing new in that. Or, or we can receive what Jesus offers. A deposing that places us squarely back where we need to be in need of a good and gracious father. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In need of a good and merciful father who, as the psalmist says, will act on our behalf. Remember, Allison started us off today in a Psalm 51. And here's what Psalm 51 says God does for us. He says he purges us with hyssop so that we will be clean. Who purges us? He does. He'll wash us and we shall be whiter than snow. And we'll hear joy and gladness, setting those once broken bones, those convictions of heart and mind back into dancing. And here's what he'll do. He'll hide his face from our sins and blot out all our iniquities. <laughs> he'll hide his face from our sins, from the sins that we've done towards others and acting like Pharisees and lawyers. You know, blot out our transgressions. For he creates in us a clean heart. We don't, he does. Our God, renewing a right spirit within us, making sure we do not get cast away from his presence and his Holy Spirit not taken from us. Through him, the joy of our salvation is restored and our lives with him upheld with a willing spirit. That's what Jesus offers us. Yes, he convicts us. Yes, he presses us. Yes, he exposes our hearts. 
He exposes things done to us and he exposes how we do things to others. And yet he invites us to have a clean heart, to receive from him a clean heart, to remove our sins, the sins that have been done to us and the sins that we do to others as far away and to restore to us a joy in life. We pray with me. Father, I thank you that your son came to speak to us about you, to show us who you are, who you truly are, and to reveal to us, Father, even where we um, where we're off. Lord, where we're off because of, of what others have said and done. Where we're off because of what we say and do. I thank you that you've deposed what we often look to to know you. Those who out of conviction and vocation speak of you and in, in their place put your son. So help us, Father, when we want to speak of you to our friends and neighbors and our children, to do so from a place, from a heart of longing for you in them and a knowledge not of rules and regulations, but a knowledge of your presence, of your mercy, of your justice, Knowledge that does not neglect any of these things that are important in the life of holiness. But rather knows that our holiness comes not from us, but from you and from what your son has done for us. May such knowledge, may such a life of obedience, Lord, be joy, true joy.